Hello, and welcome to Projective Futures, where we explore the possibilities of projection mapping. I'm Ryan Ritchie. In previous episodes, we've explored the importance of projection mapping in the worlds of live theater and video arts. Today, we're looking at the technical imaging progress that makes it all possible. And who better than one of the pioneers in the implementation of early imaging systems, and who today runs one of the most prominent companies in projection mapping. My guest is Scott Williams, the COO and co-founder of Quince Imaging. Quince Imaging is responsible for projection mapping installations at professional and collegiate arenas around the country, as well as installations for the Major League Baseball All-Star Weekend and the NFL Draft. In fact, Quince Imaging has worked on thousands of projects over the last 23 years. So I'm thrilled to welcome Scott Williams to the show. Scott, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So take us back 36 years or so. How did you get your start in display technology and what led to uh, Quince Imaging? Uh, Actually, 38 years ago, right out of college, I was hired by a defense contractor, uh, SAIC. It's now a worldwide uh, known brand. At that time, it was very small. And I I was brought on board to help them manage their underground command center engineering uh, uh, analyses and integrations. And my forte and and my function was to be in the group display and image display section where we we had to determine the size of the display, the color of the characters, the contrast of the characters. So we had to study from the very foundational level how humans see imagery from the eye. And many studies have been done over, over the last 30 years in particular. Sony was a, was a particularly uh, well-versed uh, study on how humans see visual imagery and, and how the importance of contrast, brightness, and resolution. So from that technical uh, foundation, we designed displays for command centers. And it just so happened that the only product that was v- available in the world to do bright enough and resolute enough was a Swiss-made monstrosity that cost anywhere from $550,000 to $750,000 each to buy each and was a very difficult uh, system to operate, maintain. We ended up buying a number of those, putting them in underground command centers. We also became the U.S. and North American distributor of that product. So I morphed into selling these products around the world, primarily North America. And also we owned a number of them that we rented out. And it just so happened one of the very first events that I was a part of was like the old Academy Awards at the Shrine Auditorium when they dimmed the the, the lights and this huge screen would come down from the fly rail and we would turn on this big uh, monstrosity of a projector and do their five best film videos. And so started right away in that world and it and it grew to to having a, a rental and event company using the world's brightest technology. So that's the history and uh, and how I all, all got started. And I think it's interesting because today so many people, I think, approach it from the content side and maybe don't know as much of the, the science and technology and engineering side on, in, that makes a lot of these projects possible. Yeah. And, and it, re- it really led us to, you know, it, with that particular technology, we kept pushing it, pushing it. And there were folks on the West Coast we worked with, um, you know, that are now part of Sonova, Dave Taylor and Frank McMinn. They, they helped and we all together 
pushed this technology really as far as it could go. And then it, it died right before it died. We did the 96 Olympics in Atlanta, where it was really sort of the precursor of things to come where we had a number of projectors up in the lighting towers. And we had, we did the card gag in the stadium where an area of about 150 by 150 feet had white cards under their seats. The fans brought them up and we projected on them for the live broadcast and the closing ceremonies. Um, sort of a very cool moment. It worked, should have never worked because the technology should never have uh, been used for that, but we were able to pull it off using those same techniques that were developed uh, by us in those early days. We still use today, but the technology just allows you to do so much more that morphed into quince being formed by Ron Courier and myself 23 years ago where we concentrated on large screen display imagery. And that's been our focus ever since. And, and so over that time, are there any particular milestones or breakthroughs in terms of technology that made the types of shows we see today possible? Yeah, absolutely. There are really two, two break, breakthroughs in technology that everybody enjoys in the industry. The first one is, of course, the DLP projection technology that is in uh, ubiquitous in virtually every projector. LCD is still around because of the cost of LCD is, is inexpensive, but DLP was the game changer. And once we got into DLP, brightness started leaping ahead. So that one technology allowed us to, to get to where we are today. You can go into Best Buy and buy a projector that is brighter than the one that cost three quarters of a million dollars uh, just a lowly 25 years ago. Uh, and it only costs about $4,000. <laughs> So, you know, with that brightness and resolution, you know, features and everything else, that's been the primary driver. But the secondary and not to be forgotten uh, advance has been in the media server world. And the graphic engines that drive these powerful visual effects and enable you to knit together image rasters from multiple projectors advanced very rapidly starting at about 10 years ago. And, uh, and so those two technologies together coupled allow us or enable us the tools to do all of these very high effect visuals that you see today. And one of the types of projects you do, and one that I think has been the first experience with projection mapping for many people is the mapping we see now at NBA and NHL arenas. Um, were there particular breakthroughs that made those types of shows possible? Uh, yeah, there were. During this process where projectors were getting brighter, and I'm not sure where that line actually was, 8,000, 12,000, 15, 18, 20,000 lumens, typically is about the 20,000 lumen range because brightness is relevant. It's, it's all relative to the image size you make. So uh, we're almost always limited to smaller raster sizes, you know, 15 by 20 feet, that kind of thing. And once these projectors got brighter, that kind of broke the mold on the limit to raster sizes. And we found that we could create high bright visuals at a higher raster size, enabling us to more price of cost effectively cover a larger area. So the sports mapping started really with a group of our internal group, CJ Davis, uh, Anthony Magden, Patrick Relihan was part of that arc, the Quince team sat down and, and we had seen some folks try to do it and, and they didn't understand the technology the way we did. 
And so we developed a, a, a workflow very quickly and determined how bright it needed to be. Uh, it was during the NBA draft season, I think of 2011 or 12, that we used our resources in our, uh, at, at a local sports arena, Capital One Arena in D.C., since the arena was not being used for basketball. And we brought in and did a proof of concept where we were able to provide 35-foot candles of brightness to the court. And our creative team created some really powerful force perspective visuals based on the camera angle. And we videotaped this test and we sent it to all of our NBA and NHL teams and the very early adopters. Scott O'Neill out of uh, the Philadelphia 76ers and New Jersey Devils, an owner, a very forward-thinking owner. Dan Gilbert, the very forward-thinking owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers. Many of the early adopters immediately secured us to come in and put in systems in their arenas. So that's kind of how that all got started and took off. And we've continued to raise the bar both in feature, technology, and longevity of these systems, and really treating it like when you do an LED center scoreboard in an arena, you wouldn't think of building an arena nowadays without a system that projects onto this area, this sports area, that every seat in the arena is pointed at. And it's interesting because you have the the, the other consideration, not only of you know, what's happening in the arena, but obviously a big part of this is, is how it looks on television as well. Yeah. We, we always knew that it would be a huge benefit, not just for us. Okay. A little bit of uh, selfishness there, but we also knew it'd be a huge benefit for the teams and the ownership groups to add a new layer of, of them being able to sell advertising. If they could generate a life for this product after the fact, and the, the amount of recordings that have been done on iPhones and, you know, who cares about a little laser light show anymore, right? I mean, that's not enough. You now have to have these powerful visuals and the fans expect them. And now these teams are now learning how to sell this added layer of advertising. And I'm curious about the the content refreshes. Is this something where once the system is in place, the, the team can sort of create content or, or place ads, or do they come to you to sort of do the refresh of content as well? Excellent question. We decided on day zero, we did not want to own uh, the, the portal to creating design, creating content for these systems. We wanted to sell them. We wanted to collaborate with these teams, but we wanted them quickly to learn how to use them because all these teams have their own media departments. Now, it is a little bit different workflow than creating a 16.9 media piece for a TV commercial even. You have to think a little bit out of the box, but as part of our system, we provide templates to these teams. We show them how to use the templates and multiple templates, and we train them on how to operate and how to ingest and, and manipulate content. Just in the time since you started in arenas, have, have uh, the number of projectors required changed? Has, has there been movement in the technology just in the time you've been doing these types of installations? Uh, yes, but not a lot. You know, one, once we got over the hurdle of twenty-five to thirty thousand lumens, uh, you know, the the uh, the life cycle curve is kind of flattening out a little. There are incremental increases. There are now forty thousand lumen projectors available that can do this. There are now fifty thousand lumen projectors that can do this. It's not uh, it's not causing a primordial shift in the ability to do this with less. Because the projector, yes, you can generally do less projectors, but they're more expensive. So 
the cost of doing a system at a higher level is just a little bit more expensive. But uh, generally speaking, that's the that's the result. And so as, you know, as more pro arenas are utilizing this type of setup, is it is it cost prohibitive for colleges or is there a larger market there that can now afford it? Absolutely. We have we have activated a number of colleges and have a number in the pipeline. They are starting to see the benefits. Most of these, especially big five conference teams that have large media presence, a large TV broadcast presence, are starting to see uh, the fruits of having this kind of system. Villanova uh, had a donor, and most of these are donor-based, where you don't necessarily have this in the professional ranks, where it's more bottom line cash flow oriented in the college ranks, you have, you have the opportunities for donors. And I know that Villanova uh, was a donor situation and university of Houston was a donor situation. I believe university of Florida did it out of their, uh, out of their operational budget. Uh, and there are others in the, uh, in the pipeline. We have an entry sort of level where the arenas, if they're darker, you can get away with less brightness from the projectors. The pro arenas tend to need the most horsepower because of all the advertising and everything that's going on with LED ribbons and the the light pollution that hits the court. Colleges have far less of that. So you can generally make it cost effective for them. And you mentioned the LED ribbon lights. Is there a uh, sort of a system-wide integration here with, with other systems that might already be in the arena? When we put our systems in, the very powerful media server core that we install communicates with their current ribbon system, their current center hung, their current lighting system, their current sound system. We program all those triggers back and forth and all the communication back and forth to enable the most effective, immersive result for the arena. We don't want the arenas and the owners and teams to think of this as a standalone effect. We want them to put it in and have it work with their theatrical lighting, to work with their LED ribbons. You know, if you have everything on at one time, you know, nothing looks good. Plus, no one knows where to look. But we've been able to create some extremely powerful visual effects. Uh, United Center Chicago with the Bulls and the Blackhawks in particular, where we've been able to create a template for for creating content for all their visual surfaces and communicating with their lighting to create a really powerful open and uh, and visual effects experience. You'd mentioned earlier the the advances with media servers through the years. When you have a system installed, the media team for the the arena or the 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 the, uh, the sports team, do they need to have media server knowledge, or does that sort of all happen in the background? Yeah, uh, it's always preferred if they have some, and typically most of them do because most of the playout engines for LED nowadays is a media server type system. Many of them are what we call closed systems. You know, they're they're tightly controlled by the manufacturers to uh, as far as how content is coded and how it's entered and played out. It it is a similar workflow, but we train them on the particulars and typical knowledge to quickly gain expertise in the media server is if you've done any kind of linear editing or are familiar with it, it's a very similar workflow. And in previous podcasts, I've spoken with people working with projection in live theater and projection mapping artists, and both sort of pointed out different software that's used, you know, based on the budget of the show on the live right. side. Uh, they mentioned Isadora and sometimes Watch Out, and it kind of depends on 
your budget. I'm curious whether there's standardization in your world in terms of a particular media server that's generally preferred or a particular you know type or brand of of projector, for example. Media servers are <laughs> as you as you just like the uh, software available for mapping for theatrical uh, integration. Media servers are are plentiful. And just like any particular product that has a high level of features, there isn't one that kind of does everything well. Most of the media servers at the higher level of our industry do just about everything, but some are better suited. We quickly settled on, uh, at that time, uh, Pandora's Box, which before it was bought by Christie, Pandora's Box was the 500-pound gorilla. It was the very robust if you wanted to do tracking of objects real time and you wanted to uh, you wanted to to communicate multiple layers to multiple output devices and send multiple triggers or receive multiple triggers very powerful uh, and a very good graphics engine to be able to handle projection imagery at a high resolution level so all of our early installations were pandora's box we still work in pandora's box but we also uh, some of our installations have shifted to a Ventus platform, and the big discriminator there is the real-time rendering capability of Ventus, which means, you, what's that mean? You don't have to render out every scene of every piece of content, and it's proven to be a very powerful ally. So sometimes we work in combination, you know, depending on the event. We, we work with two of them, sometimes Ventus, sometimes Pandora's box, but those are really the two primary platforms. We have done events with Watchout, which is a little more playback centric and a little less expensive. But I know there are other companies and firms that have worked very successfully with uh, Disguise and Green Hippo. Those type of brands are, are also used a lot. We, we don't typically use them. And there's no real reason why we don't other than uh, familiarity with the, the two that we've chosen. And so thinking about projection projects outside of the arena, when you get a – let's say you got a call for projection mapping thing on the front of a, a five-story building, for example. Is it at a point where sure. you kind of at that point in your head can can say, okay, I know we're going to need you know X number of projectors and, and we'll use Y software solutions? Or is each project sort of so unique that, that you're sort of starting from, from zero each time? There are two parts to it. First part is the projection design. Uh, you must know a couple of things. Most concepts we can rough in within about a half an hour as far as how much it costs to do. The size of the image area to be projected on. And at that point, we kind of need to, to get a feeling on what the ambient light conditions are. Because what the human eyes really sees is contrast, right? And so if, if we're putting... 20 foot candles onto the side of a building and the ambient light is five foot candles. That's a four to one contrast ratio. Not good enough. But if, if it's only 0.5 foot candles and we're putting, you know, 20 foot candles on, that's a 40 to one contrast ratio. Good enough. So you see, we didn't change the projectors. It's just the amount of light that hits it from street lights or urban pollution or, you know, 7.30 at night versus 9.30 at night. So first step is determining how many projectors are required in a perfect world in what we call theater dark. And then from there, we add to them 
based on what we learn about the ambient light conditions. And if it's a if it's a project that's real, and we're working on a number of huge and which will be visibly noticeable by everybody in the country projects where we went out and did light meeting light meter readings at at the time of night that we're actually going to be doing these projections and so that we could uh, preliminarily calculate exactly what the contrast is going to be so that there's no guesswork so once the projection design is done what type of software or media servers used all depends on the complexity of the warping how many rasters we're trying to combine and the style of the content that the client has. Typically to rent these these products are not very expensive and there isn't a huge amount of difference between them. And how much of a headache is uh, <laughs> weather for you, an outdoor experience versus indoors? Well, it's definitely a thing. We plan for the worst. Weather is is one of the top two considerations for us. Safety is is huge and People, uh, you know, the fact that people get lucky every once in a while with weather is a very dangerous thing. We plan for the worst, hope for the best. We have a very good protocol for protecting the equipment and the operators and everybody's safety for weather, whether it be a housing for the projector itself, which is at the very high end, you know, because if you have a 24 projector show like we did for the uh, New England Patriots ring ceremony, 24 projectors. We, we actually install, installed two C containers at the top of the stadium that held 12 each. In the overall scheme of things, it wasn't as difficult as trying to do 24 separate housings for these projectors. So uh, it all depends, but weather is definitely a factor that you must consider. And you'd mentioned earlier, you know, factoring in ambient light and, of course, the the reflection of, of whatever you're projecting on. I wanted to talk a little bit about what I'm guessing was probably a pretty challenging project, and that was your work with uh, Major League Baseball for the All-Star Weekend. <laughs> so, you know, start with an open-air stadium, you know, 90 feet between the bases, and essentially try to project light in equal amounts of intensity and resolution across the entire baseball diamond when there's no roof and the closest you can get with projectors is about a 35 percent angle of incidence which is which is oblique to say the least right and the old way of thinking was to always project onto something and then correct the raster for the 16 to 9 raster size and and we did a lot of trial and error and a lot of concepting and we found that we were able, because what happens is you, you create a tremendous trapezoid from that angle. You, you create an image that's maybe 50 feet wide and 150 feet tall. And yet it's the same 16 by 9 chip that you're doing that with. And so we decided to build a workflow and templatize conserving all of that brightness instead of throwing it away. Instead of correcting every raster to fit our workflow, we corrected our workflow to fit the rasters. So we we were able to put them onto this baseball field at different angles, different angles of incidence. We had some 90 degrees to the left, 90 degrees to the right. And then we were able to build the workflow to correct every single pixel in that raster to a single image, which was the field itself. It was a very difficult process, but very, uh, very enjoyable once you, once you figured it out. 
and plenty plenty of people watching in case something goes wrong right sure sure yeah and uh you know that uh, uh that that got a lot of press it was very difficult to do and you know quince is really involved with the with the more difficult and this is really our forte now it's it's the very difficult applications that others just can't do we're constantly concepting out how to achieve new and innovative activations and that was just another hurdle of course now that the same techniques we learned there has been pulled into football we've done football a couple of times we've got a lot of uh, a lot of potential uh, activations we've also spoken to you know soccer teams about about doing their pitch and other football activations so more to come well Speaking of more to come, and we will get into to the future and, and technology and so forth, but obviously, as we're talking, um, projection mapping is huge at events where people gather and people aren't gathering right now. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, what you see short term in, in terms of projection mapping and, and the outlook for the next few years. Yeah, I, I think short term is, is very germane for us to talk about because You've seen in some of the cities around the country and some of the hospitals, people projecting uh, images of, of first, first line workers, you know, emergency care workers in appreciation of these folks. And we've, we've received dozens of calls to do just this, you know, to really do appreciation of, of those type of folks. And I think it's a powerful medium. And so at some level, there is, uh, there is interest in doing this. Some of the large events that we're working on for this autumn will be the country pulling together moments in a huge way, um, trying to dance around saying what we're <laughs> going to be doing, that will, that will be viewed by millions, uh, both live and uh, on the internet for quite a while. The good feeling type activations are definitely a potential for all of us in this industry. So it's not dead. Obviously, everybody where in the in the industries where people gather are uh, are being bloodied. There's no doubt. It's it's just a tremendous challenge for everybody in this industry to stay afloat. We're we're fortunate ourselves uh, because of our positioning and the fact that we do permanent installations also, and they don't you know they're not as affected. Uh, in the in the short run, as uh, as the events industry, and like you said, you know, you're doing a lot of the, the the big events, the headlining events. Do you see the use of projection mapping and projection in general sort of trickling down to more of everyday life, classrooms, museums, that sort of thing? Uh, unequivocally, people are very quick to announced the the death of video projection with the advent of higher resolution LED. And to a certain extent, many of the traditional markets where projection was entrenched certainly has been supplanted by LED technology. It's easier. It's less susceptible to light. You know, doing corporate meetings with two large screens left and right certainly can be LED. But projection mapping is definitely a, a technology that's not going to go away. Turning normal everyday surfaces into activated media portals is what this is all about. As you know, as you mentioned earlier, the fact that you could go into to a Best Buy and get a projector brighter than some of those those projectors in the early days. Uh, as the the barriers come down from a cost standpoint, what are some of the key strengths? 
to being successful in this industry? Well, uh, if folks want to be in this industry, I, I think uh, having a foundation of what makes success in these kind of activations, understanding the core level of, of brightness, resolution, colorimetry, and that you know, there's really two parts of this recipe for success, right? And that is you have to have a, an image bright enough to resolve, and then you have to have really compelling content. And to have one without the other, it means you're going to fail. Very simple recipe. Understanding that, but technically, we take a variety of folks with backgrounds. Some are, are technical projection type folks. Some are even lighting because people in our industry predicted the morphing of lighting and video departments, you know, 10 years ago. And it, and it will happen and they are becoming closer. I envision a time where when we, in a sports arena, just for the sake of, uh, of argument, where every single instrument in a sports arena is a video projector, not a light. So every moment that they're not playing basketball with a hundred foot candles, right? Broadcasters need to have brightness. We can, we can turn every single space, whether it be the people in the seats, the hallways, the court, the floor, the everything can be manipulated uh, with visual imagery. That's that's sort of the goal. What are some of the remaining hurdles? You know, there have been so many technological breakthroughs. What are some of the the things you'd like to see improve over the next few years? These projection manufacturers damn well better make a projector that's waterproof. That's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, we it, they're never bright enough. You know, we've made some tremendous advancements in brightness, and and I'm fortunate enough at my age to have seen when it was very important a little thousand lumen increase, and I've also seen uh, and been able to benefit as a group, our firm, uh, twenty thousand lumen leaps in in, in performance. So. They need to make them waterproof and continue with the you know micro uh, micro engineering of them, and if and if we're doing that, the sky's the limit. Scott Williams, the COO and co-founder of Quince Imaging. You can find out more about them at quinceimaging.com. Scott, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Ryan. Again, that's Scott Williams, the COO of Quince Imaging. You can find out more about their projects at quinceimaging.com. The sky truly is the limit for the future of projection mapping. We can create and experience astounding projects when we share information and collaborate. And that's one of the key purposes of this podcast. So please tell a friend, leave a review, and help us grow our projection mapping community. If you have suggestions for future shows, send us an email, projectedfutures at gmail.com. Or you can reach us on Twitter at projectedfuture, no S on the end. Once again, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll be back for our next episode.